different things. Of course, if you spent any time here at the Foundry, you know that I love football. It's one of my favorite sports. Uh, but listen, I have a cousin who has two kids, and they both made the cheerleading team at Michigan State. And so um, they're, they're cheerleaders. I've been kind of watching for them on the sideline when I watch games. And, and it got me thinking that I should start my sermon this way. All right, so just humor me. All right, so give me an S. S. Yes. Give me a U. U. Give me a C. C. Give me another C. C. Right, give me an E. E. Give me an S. S. Give me another S. S. What does that spell? Success. Success. Right. What does that spell? Success. All right. I know. I should. I should. Let me go back to college. All right. Success is what a lot of us strive for. Right? Because success is kind of what the world values, especially on that surface level. Right? We, we remember winners, not losers. We remember gold medal Olympians like Michael Phelps, and Katie Ledecky, and Usain Bolt. Right? We don't remember the 10,000 plus Olympians who failed to receive a medal. We uh, remember champions, don't we? Uh, valedictorians, kind of, right? maybe not your high school one, right? CEOs, celebrities, the, the rich and the famous, uh, those at the top and not those at the bottom. We live and breathe, Foundry Church, in a culture, it's just the way it is in our world right now, that celebrates success, right? Success. We live and breathe it, and sometimes, Foundry, if we're honest, even in the church, uh, what we secretly value is success over faithfulness. Success over our surrender to God. Success over true discipleship. You know, I, I go to different conferences sometimes, and, and I love going to conferences, and I learn different things, and I interact with, with, with peers and, 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 and colleagues, and, and we learn and we have fun. But I always thought it would be interesting if, if I got an email about a conference that said, hey, this year's speaker is going to be you know, John Smith from Podunk, Iowa. I don't know, Iowa seems like a real small town place. All right, so Podunk, town in Iowa. He's been at his church for 25 years. There's 100 people. He's been faithful preaching the gospel in season and out of season. Uh, he's made a huge, they made a huge impact in their community. He's going to be our speaker, our main speaker. That never happens, right? It's always like the big person with the biggest Instagram account that is at 12 conferences speaking. Because even in the church, we again, we love winners. We, we scorn losers. We love success, right? But how do we feel about this other word that also begins with an S? Now, I'm not going to cheer this time, right? I wasn't going to get pom-poms, but I could find them. But it begins with the first two letters in success. You guys are thinking another word. Yeah. Yeah. Hugs. Hugs was. You guys are thinking of another word that started with an S. I just realized that with some of your eyes. Uh, but this word, it starts the same two letters as success, but then it takes a drastic turn. It's this word. Suffer. We have it? No, there's issues. There's issues. All right, suffer. <laughs> We're suffering. <laughs> Mackenzie's not here. Tech guru. <laughs> We're 
or suffering. We don't like this word very much, suffer. Right? We often speak to each other about our successes, but how often do we uh, share it in our sufferings? And really, think about it. Maybe think, you have to think outside of the church a little bit. Uh, how much would we talk about the suffering or the pain of the middle? We talk about the excitement of something that we're starting. We maybe talk about the success of it at the end, but that suffering, that work in the middle, man, we never talk about that, right? We don't talk about suffering. So, of course, there are a few of us, I just want to zoom out, because there's a few of us who are probably a little too good at sharing in our sufferings, right? Think of, think of your, your crazy aunt that you just never ask how she's doing. You just know because if you do, you say, hey, aunt so-and-so, how are you doing? You know you're going to get an earful about the second from the left toe that's been hurting her, and somehow it's kind of gone up her body to her elbow, and now she thinks she has some form of cancer that no one else has even heard of before. So you, they, they, those people enjoy in their suffering, and they will always tell you about their suffering, and they'll just go on and on. Now, I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about us. Right? All of us here, right? normal people, we don't, we don't often talk about our suffering, but the truth of the matter is that we all have we just all have it. We all have something that we've gone through. Just be honest. We all have something that we've gone through, that we're going through, that, that's been in our past, or that we're dealing with right now, or, or we're even suffering about things that have yet to come. We're feeling pain. Now, I, I once went to a, a session at a, a theology group meeting thing about caring for our church. Uh, caring for our local congregations. And the thing that the speaker kept saying over and over again was never underestimate the pain in the room. Right? And just never underestimate the pain that we all could be feeling. A, a couple weeks ago, we, we took a little survey of people here, and in that survey, we found out that every single one of us has a pain of some sort that we're dealing with in some form or another. There's just Pain. Everyone is going through something. None of us are alone in that. And some of us are suffering physically. Some of us are suffering spiritually. Some of us are, are suffering emotionally or mentally. Some of us are dealing with the pain of a relational suffering. Or we're suffering financially. And the list can just go on and on and on. But everyone is going through something. And if we're honest, most, most of us at one point or uh, another, maybe right now, have cried out to God, why God, why God would you let me suffer so much? Why God, is there so much pain? How am I supposed to survive this? How am I supposed to get through this? How is my family supposed to overcome this? Where is the success in this suffering? Where's the other end? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? Right? That, Foundry Church, and like the cookies last week, uh, that is the onion that we're going to be peeling today. Why does God let us suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? We hear it like that sometimes. Why is, is God doing when, what is God doing when all these horrible things are happening all around us 
in our communities, in our families, or even in the world as a whole. And chances are, you walked in here today with some pain, and you're just looking for a glimmer of hope. And, and I know that you might be thinking, well, you, you're kind of assuming, Andrew, you're, you're kind of assuming that I have pain. Well, I do. And I know that I'm not alone. Right? There's pain. And we're all looking for a glimmer of hope to get through the suffering. I heard a, a commercial for a physician, a doctor's office or something, with a solution for people suffering from nerve pain in their hands and in their feet. And the tagline for this, this office, for this ad, was simply this. Imagine living pain-free for the rest of your life. Right, we've all seen those commercials. Right, we've all heard that type of advertisement uh, on the radio. And I think there might be more than one of us in here today hoping to find a way to live pain-free for the rest of our lives. To find a little bit of success instead of suffering. To find the answer to the question of why God? Why God would you let me suffer? And I think the answer, as always, can be found in what we anchor ourselves to, right? Our God and His Word. So if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in the book of Job. The book of Job is like right kind of in the middle of your Bible. So if you open up your Bible, it's usually Psalms right in the middle. Job is the book right before the book of Psalms. As always, you can use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, and you can take those Bibles with you. They are free for you to have to use, to take, right? Uh, Job chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to kind of work through some scriptures there in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. So use the table of contents if you need to. But Job chapter 1, that's the big number 1. And then we're going to start right after, after that. Alright, so verses 1 simply says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Right, so right off the bat, keep your finger there, we're going to keep reading this. Job 1-1 introduces us to a man, Job, and his character. Right, who he was and what he was about. He was blameless, it says. He was upright, it says. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Some people say that, that suffering, this is a lie. All right? Some say that suffering is only the result of sin. All right? Sure, it can be. Absolutely. But that's not the only reason. Right? Suffering, if, if that's the case, Job wouldn't be the guy that we'd be talking about. Because Job is not missing the mark at all in his life. Right? He, he, like I said, blameless in the eyes of God. So, so Job, he turns away from people because he, he fears God. That's just the Old Testament way of saying that he, he respects God. He, he, he forges his life on God. Right? And God, his Father, his Heavenly Father, the God that he worships, the God he forges his life on, is the number one thing in his life. Just like we just said. Right? Jesus over everything. Job lived that out. Jesus over everything. 
Alright, so Job, Job he turns away from evil because he fears God. He pursues right and he avoids evil. His reputation is blameless. His reverence for God governs all that he does. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Verses 2 through 3. It simply says, There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Right, verses 2 through 3 describe the way that God had blessed Job in his righteousness. With uh, these, these physical blessings, right? It's, it's what he has, right? Job, he's rich, right? Job, our man here that we're reading about, the dude is wealthy. He had seven uh, sons and three daughters, huge number of sheep like we read about. He had camels. He could do the, the what day it is joke like multiple times every Wednesday. He had oxen. He had servants. He was the greatest of all people in that region. Job was the Jeff Bezos of the ancient, ancient world that he lived in. If, if he wanted it, he had it. Right? He had it. So let's keep look, looking at this. Verses 4 through 5 says, uh, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and they would invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So thus, Job did this continually. Right, so verses 4 through 5 describe these specific instances of, of Job's fear for God, his respect for God, and his uprightness even toward his children. Right, every time his sons and his daughters gathered for a feast, for, for a house party, right? Right? You know, the author of Job here kind of cleans it up. Right? Every time they, they gather and they're, they're partying, and Job would get up early the next morning, he would offer burnt offerings for each one just in case any of them had sinned or they cursed God in their heart like they forged their life on something other than God. Job was so concerned about that. He would get up and he would pray for them. He would offer burnt offerings for them. In other words, Job was so good, he even offered up sacrifices for other people. And this is the man that we're talking about. Now, I don't recommend doing this. He prayed for, for them, right? That's not really how sacrifices work. But I, I think it's obvious that Job was a good guy. He, he, was, a, he was a great guy. And then there's this, this glimpse that we have as the church today into heaven. And we get to see this conversation between God and Satan. This, this weird conversation. Let's look at it. Jump down uh, verse 6 through verse 12 is what we're going to read right here. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, my man Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is a weird conversation. It's just a weird conversation. Satan is talking about how he's going back and forth on the, on the earth. And then God says, hey, have you seen my man Job? Or have you seen my dude? And to me, this really doesn't make sense. What God is doing here. It's like a, a diamond thief. And meeting the owner of a jewelry store late at night in the back alley behind the store. And the owner says, hey, what are you doing? And the jewelry, the jewelry thief, he answers. He says, hey, I'm just walking around in your store. I've been going back and forth looking at everything. And the owner says, hey, did you see the most precious diamonds? Did you see that case with the, the really, really, really nice ones? The valuable ones? Did you see that? <laughs> it's like, what are you doing now? Why aren't, why, why aren't you pointing out all the fake stuff? Right? The, the, the worthless stuff. Like, that's what I would be doing if I was like the, the owner of the jewelry store or if I was God in the situation. Right? But God is not like me. Right? We can all take a, a breath. Right? right? He knows what he's doing. And so he gives Satan permission to do what he wants. Right? That's when you know it's the fan. Alright. Job chapter 1, verse 13. Look at this. Now there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and, and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came in another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another one and said, The Shaladines formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them. And struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18 says, While he was yet speaking, there came another messenger and said, Your sons and their daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 20, look at it. Then Job arose, tore his robe, he shaved his head, a form of, of repentance and worship and, and just faithfulness to God. He fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
Right? So, so Founders Church. So all of Job's prosperity is gone like this. And one afternoon, his belongings, even the camels, are all gone. And then his children are all taken. Everything that, that Satan thinks makes Job love God is gone. Right? Satan thinks this is only the reason that he forges his life on God, so I'm going to take it. And then just look at what we read, verses 20 through 22, his response. Right? Job did not sin in response to the suffering. He really is a great man. And God is so proud of Job that while he reminds Satan of him again, like, what God? Right? Take a look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to read the first six verses here. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present them, uh, to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Now, what again in the world is going on here? Right? Job did everything right, and God still turns him over to Satan for a second time again. Right? Because this time Satan says, Job only loves you, God, not because of his possessions, but because he's healthy. Take that away, and he won't love you anymore. He won't forge his life on you anymore. So Satan does just that. Look at, look at verses 7 through 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he had to take a piece of broken pottery with, with him, which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Right, so Job, our man here, loses his, his health. And according to Job, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, Job was covered with these boil-like sores. And they opened up, and they, they ran out with, with pus, and they got clogged with dirt, and they were infested with worms, just real nasty stuff. I was going to try to find some pictures. Right? Thank you. <laughs> this wasn't chicken pox. It was, it was bad. It was hor a horrible thing from the top of his head to the very bottom of his feet. And this proves to be too much for Job's wife, which I can't blame her. It would be pretty hard and to be happy to be married to someone, to the, the, this man who has worms growing out from the sores on their body. Right? Read with me her question to Job after all of this happens. Verse, verse 9, she says, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, I'm pretty sure Satan, like he's hovering right there. He's like, yes, yes, victory. It's in my grasp, right? 
And I'm pretty sure Satan was like, I finally got him. Job's going to curse God to his face. He's going he's to give up forging his life on God. He's not going to love God anymore. Right? Who's going to, to disagree with their wife while there's pus running out of these open wounds? Satan's thinking, man, I'm going to show God. Man, I'm going to show God that he is wrong. Look at verse 10. All right, verse 10, he says, when he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't curse God. Right? He, didn't, he didn't curse God. Now, now that is all that we're going to read today, and I encourage you to read the rest of the story of Job. It's the oldest book in the Bible. The, the story of Job goes on to tell the tale of three horrible friends who give horrible advice. And it ends with God and Job having an amazing conversation about who is actually in control. Right? God. Spoiler alert. Right? But I encourage you to read it. Right, but for today, let's just focus on the first two chapters that we read and how they help us to answer the cry of our heart. Why God? Why do we suffer? Right, first, we, we can see in these, in these two chapters, we can see that in our suffering, Satan really only has one true aim. He only has one true aim, to destroy our joy in God. Isn't that funny that it just started working when, did it just start working? When we talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah Satan can't break down us, right? Yeah. We got joy. All right, we got joy. That's Satan's aim to destroy that joy in God. And he will use whatever he can to do that. Sometimes he uses our pain, and sometimes he uses our, our blessings. He distracts us, right? Makes us think that we find joy and happiness in, in, in things that are other than God. Right? Satan uses pain to make us feel that, that God is powerless, that the God that we forge our life on is it can't control it, that he's not in control. He says many things like, if God is all-powerful, why doesn't he, he have and save all of your stuff? Right? Why would he let your house get blown down and with your kids in it? Why would he let you lose your job? He uses our pain, Satan does, to make us doubt the omnipotence of God, his, his power. But on the other side of the coin, he uses pleasure to make us feel that, that God is unnecessary. That we don't need to forge our life on the God of the universe. If we have everything in this world, why do we say we need God? That's, he makes us start thinking like that. But all that he does is to replace the joy of God with the joy of his creation, with the joy that, that will never satisfy, leaving us to suffer over and over and over again. There is no doubt, Foundry Church, what Satan is after in our life is to destroy our joy Fruit of the Spirit, our, our, our rooted joy, not just happiness, but our joy in God. Right? And, and while we know the ultimate aim of Satan, we can also see in these first two chapters that no matter what Satan's aim is, we can remember this, God only grants limited power to Satan to cause pain. 
Right? And there's a lot here. There's a whole other sermon here. But in John chapter 1, verse 12, God says to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your power. Right? All that he has, all that he owns is in your power, only upon himself. Do not put forth your hand. Right? And again, in Job chapter 2, verse 6, where we read, uh, God says, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. God sets the limits. God sets the limits of Satan's power to cause that pain in this broken world that we live in. Right? Satan cannot make a move without the permission of God Almighty. And we take joy in that. Right? When you, you read the book of Job, you see Satan covering the horizon from side to side. And there is waste, and there is death, and there's murder, and there's blood, and there's robbery, and there's violence, there's pillage, and there's affliction, pain, and misery. And Satan seems to color the whole creation with this. And when we are in similar moments, Foundry Church, where everything around us looks bleak, we need to remember that God is still there. That God is still there. The God that we forge our life on is with us. There's somebody besides Satan. Satan goes only as far as God permits. He's allowed this, but no more. W.A. Criswell, a preacher from Texas, he puts it like this. He says, the hound of hell and the dog of damnation can snap and bark and growl and snarl, but he has an iron collar around his neck, and that collar is an iron chain. Now listen, Father Church. The end of that chain is held in the hand of an omnipotent God. An all-powerful God. John Piper once said it like this, Satan may be a lion. Right? First Peter chapter 1, verse 5, um, it says that Satan, our adversary, he roams around, right? He's roaming around the world, just like he was doing here in the beginning of Job. He's roaming around the world, seeking someone to devour, like a roaring lion is our adversary. Right? So Satan may be a lion, but he's a lion on a leash is what we're seeing through the book of Job. Satan can do just so much, and God reigns him in. The sovereign of the universe, the sovereign of history, the sovereign of national life, the sovereign of political or, and state life, the sovereign of individual life, the sovereign uh, of your life is not damnation and hell and death and the grave and Satan and the devil and, and just being in complete darkness. It is the Lord God Almighty. He's the sovereign. And he, he reigns on the throne, high and lifted up forever in that chain. That chain is in his hands, our church. Listen, there's, there's joy there. Right? In the end of Job's story, we see that God said enough is enough to say pulled back the reins on the devil, and then he restored to Job everything that was taken from him. Uh, Job, if you want to flip over to Job chapter 42, the end of the book. Verses 12 through 17 simply says this. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than in his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Right? He named his daughters. 
And in all the land, there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Right? He was able to bless them in a culture that only blessed the sons, right? And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man in full days. What a good description, right? Full of days. And it is with that powerful knowledge in mind, Foundry Church, that we can learn our final and most important lesson from Job. And it's this. This is hard. This is hard. Be patient in suffering, and joy will come in the morning. Oh, I know that stinks. But it's hard. It's hard, but it's be patient in suffering and joy will come in the morning. If Satan's aim is to destroy our joy in God, he only has so much power, and then all we must do is be patient because the joy will come in the morning. For Job, his joy was found in the restoration of a family and of possessions and of a legacy and of generations. For us, our joy might look and feel different, but it will come. We must be patient. You see, God doesn't just think of us in terms of silver and gold or bonds and stocks or, or lands or even herds of camels or flocks or real estate or things. God gave Job a doubling of everything that he had, including his grace. And God was, was going to double Job's experience of everything. And God doubles his love for the Lord. He doubles his mercies. He, he doubles his, his kindness even towards Job. Right? Job had to suffer for those things. And they don't come in any other way than through great trial and through great suffering. Right? A fire or a refinery, right? I want to take a look at just one final verse today to explain this point even further and even a little bit more clear. Turn with me to the book of James. This is in the New Testament. Right? It's one of Paul's letters in the book, or one of the New Testament epistles, one of the letters of the New Testament, not Paul. Turn with me to the book of James and the fifth chapter. It's one more verse about Job. Verse 11 says, Behold, just listen to this, we consider those blessed who remain, what does it say? Steadfast. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord in that, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He said, Church, you have seen and heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and is merciful. Now, in your Bibles, when you turn there, when you get there, use the table of contents if you need to. Job is towards the end, or James is towards the end of the New Testament. Just a short letter. All right, only, uh, only five chapters, right before 1 Peter. But I want you to look there, and I want you to underline that phrase that says something like, the purpose of the Lord, or, or the Lord finally brought about, depending on what translation you're using. Right, the, the purpose of the Lord, the Lord brought about. 
Right? I want you to underline that. Whatever that phrase is, in Greek it says, kai uh, telos. Telos. That word telos means, it's the way that it's transcribed is fulfillment. It's completion. Right? It's to the end. Here the writer of James is saying that Job was patient for the completion of the Lord's work. All right, he, he knew that the God that he forged his life on would complete this work, either on this side of heaven or the next side of heaven. All right? All right? So he had to be steadfast. He had to persevere. He had to have grit. He was patient for the fulfillment of the Lord's work. He was patient for the aim of the Lord's work to take root. Why? And because when the Lord is done, his work is always beautiful, good, and gracious. And, and like it says, it, it's complete. It's merciful. right? God never proposed an evil thing for any of his creation, least of all of the crown of his glory for the soul and the life of a man. And so the end of the Lord for us is always good. It is always full of joy. The reason that we're not successful in suffering is because we're not patient enough. We don't hold fast. We're not steadfast. The voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is patience. The voice of the Holy, Holy Scriptures written on the, on the pages of our Bibles is patience. The voice of God that we forge our life on is patience. The voice of our Savior is patience. He has a purpose. He has a plan. He will complete it. All God wants for us is to find our joy in Him. And to find our joy in Him may require some patience. It may require that steadfast pace. That now in the end, in the completion of the plan and the fulfillment of God's work, there will be joy, there will be redemption, there will be hope. It will be worth it. And if only we're patient in the working of God. Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, once said, If a man were to attack me with a knife, I would resist him with all my strength and count it a tragedy if he succeeded. Yet if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, I welcome both him and the knife. Let him cut me open even wider than the knife attacker because I know his purpose is good and necessary. If we know that God will bring joy, the God that we forge our life on is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that He is a loving Father. If we forge our life on Him, even if it may be difficult, we can be patient in the end because we're going to see it to completion either in this life, like Job did, or in the next. Because we have that gift of eternity. Right? We will welcome the suffering with patient hearts, waiting for the joy to come. If we are patient, the work of the Lord will come on our church to completion. And we will see the good and the reason and the why and the joy found in God alone. So as the, the band comes up, I want to tell you a story about Stephen Colbert. Is that how you say his name, Stephen Colbert? Kind of. All right, let's say yes. Right now, regardless of what you think about his politics or his show hosting ability, I want to tell you about his life. Stephen was just 10 years old when his father and his two brothers 
I died in a plane accident. I didn't know this until I read this story. He was left to be the only child at home with his mom. And in an article that was written by GQ magazine, he was asked how he could experience such losses and not become angry and bitter as he grew up. And his answer is so profound. He said this, I'm going to read it. He said, my context for my existence is that I am here right now in my time on earth to know God, to love God, to serve God, that we might be happy with each other in this world and with him in the next. He said, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I got that from my mom and my dad and my siblings. And I was left alone a lot after my dad and the boys died. And it was just me and mom for a long time, he said. And by her example, he said, I'm not bitter. He said she was broken. I was broken, yes. We were hurting. Bitter? He said, no. Colbert said that even in his mother's days of unending grief, she grew on her faith and the only way to not be swallowed up by sorrow is to recognize that our sorrow is inseparable from our joy, he says. He says, is to always understand our suffering ourselves in the light of eternity. Completion. Colbert ended his answer by describing a letter from J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote, he wrote this, he said, he said, what punishments of God are not gifts? I know it's hard. It's hard. And Colbert's eyes filled with tears and said in the article, and he said, so it would be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it. But I can hold both of those ideas in my head. Suffering and pain, being patient, being steadfast. It's hard. And that's how we get from suffering to success because we serve a God. We, we are in a relationship with God. We're on an adventure with a God who says, by definition, I'm complete. He says, I, I'm the God of the universe. Satan can go only so far. We live in a broken world. Yes, but it's going to be made right. And there's victory. I defeated death. I defeated, I defeated death. You have eternal life. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. That's what our hope is. Not a, a figment. Not a, like I hope that Christina doesn't get home until after dinner so I can order Uber Eats without her knowing. Right? Not like just a hope. Churchy and 